The single most important number one habit that we can really take care of for helping with physical and mental bounce back ability, sleep. Mm. At least eight hours a night. At least at least eight hours a night. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Today we are joined all the way from Washington, D.C. by Dr. Elizabeth Stanley. She is the author of a very popular book called Widen the Window, Training Your Brain and Body to Thrive During Stress and Recover from Trauma. Elizabeth has a really compelling story. Not only is she uh, incredibly qualified uh, with multiple degrees, but uh, she's also developed a program called the Mindfulness-Based Mind Fitness Training, or MFT, MindFit for, for short, it's pronounced. Uh, but it's been taught to thousands of people in civilian and military high-stress environments. Uh, her research has been featured on 60 Minutes, ABC Evening News, NPR, and even in Time Magazine, and many other media outlets. She has won numerous awards, and she has spent a lot of time coaching U.S. Army veterans, the U.S. Marines, firefighters, elite athletes, corporate execs, all around how to manage stress so that you can maintain a high performance mindset and executional capability. So in this episode, guys, we really do get into the meat and the potatoes of grit. Uh, and it's quite interesting because there's this theme in entrepreneurship around resilience and grit and perseverance. Now that has its place. But if it's not managed appropriately, it can lead to very dire consequences uh, burnout being one of the most prevalent ones. In her own life, uh, there's a story that she shares uh, where she believed after exiting the U.S. Army herself, she did a, a tour and she very much believed in this idea of powering through. Um, and as a U.S. Army veteran with a PTSD diagnosis, she thought it would be cool to pursue two graduate degrees at the same time. Um, and unfortunately, that led to her losing her eyesight for a period of time. Um, and this is uh, such a relevant conversation for, for me to have with her and more importantly, for me to share it with you. Um, she spent 15 years studying the neurobiology of stress. We talk about the MFT program in detail and how you can apply MFT in your own life today. Uh, we talk about the relationship to, of breathing to mindfulness and the ability to act in a way that is congruent with your highest values despite incredible pressure and stress that you might be going through. And I know that if we can figure that stuff out together, we will be better entrepreneurs and ultimately better human beings for it. So for those of you guys, uh, before we get into the main meat and the potatoes of the show, if you have been emailing me, please do keep so. Uh, please do keep emailing me. It's always great to hear from you. You can email me at hello at mattbrownshow.com or you can tweet me at mattbrownza. So without further ado, guys, into Dr. Elizabeth Stanley. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to yet another cracking installment of the Matt Brown Show. Today, we are joined all the way from the bright lights of Washington, D.C. by Dr. Elizabeth Stanley. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Matt, for having me. And please call me Liz. I will. I will, 
Dr. Liz. <laughs> but uh, great. You can so, drop the doctor even. Can, I, can we just get, well, great. We're going into the mall today. So, so let's, make that, uh, let's make that happen and stick. So, um, so we're going to be talking about um, something that's really important for all of us. Um, and this uh, book up on the screen here, guys, is called uh, Widen the Windows, written by Liz. Uh, training your brain and body to thrive during stress and recover from trauma. So uh, this is um, something that I think is super relevant for for many of us uh, all around the world, for wherever you guys are listening and catching the show. Um, you know, we stress is a real thing. And, um, you know, I think, Liz, I'm really excited to kind of get into what you've learned uh, in uh, your own journey. So uh, let's talk about that. Uh, where did your journey start? Like what was the spark that caused you to, you know, embark in this incredible journey of knowledge in this area? It's kind of interesting, Matt, for those of us who do uh, research, there tends to be this interesting theme of research being me search. I mean, in my case, I really had to learn about this for myself And I ended up writing about what I learned so that I could share with other people. Um, I've experienced a lot of stress and trauma in my life. And I guess it started when I was still in the womb, when my mother was dealing with some tremendous losses and it had ripple effects to me while I was still, you know, gestating and childhood stress and trauma. And then I served in the military and so military training, stressful deployments I had a near-death experience when I was in Bosnia. A lot of sexual violence has happened in my life. So that by the time I left active duty in my late 20s, um, my system was just kind of done because I had coped the way so many of us have been socialized in our cultures to cope by kind of pushing it under, pushing it aside, suppressing it, denying it, powering through. And my body was bearing the burden of that. And it all kind of came out in my late 20s and early 30s. And at that point, I really had nowhere to run from it. I had to turn and face it. And um, so the book kind of includes my healing journey, but then where I took this research um, and creating a resilience training program, teaching it in high stress situations. And it includes the stories of the men and women I've trained too. And uh, maybe just for our audience, for some context, who who have you engaged? Because um, I know uh, I will get into this a bit later. Your uh, your mind fitness training, I believe, or uh, we can get into that MFT. Um, but um, who have you worked with? I mean, who is your typical kind of customer in the context of stress management? Well, my first pilot study um, was with. U.S. Marines. Um, I've also worked with the U.S. Army. I've worked with uh, emergency medical people and ER doctors. I've worked with police and firefighters. Um, I've worked, uh, I've trained members of Congress and corporate executives. Um, I've trained some elite athletes. I mean, just a range of different environments that are high demand and high stress. Um, And I'm always excited to work with these audiences because they are often in positions to help um, sort of serve the greater good. And I want them to have as much capacity to do that as possible. What ties, what is the commonality in your experience, you know, coaching the U S army firefighters, elite athletes, corporate execs, et cetera. Um, What is the universal commonality that you see uh, in all these different types of uh, mindsets that you're coaching? really interesting question, Matt. 
I would say that a lot of it comes back to some of this core social conditioning that we've had that really prioritizes what, at least here in the U.S., people call grit. Um, This idea of being able to just keep going through adversity, like not letting failure get you down, um, pushing through despite the obstacles. And while that does have a particular capacity that is helpful as a way of moving through the world all the time, it actually has a lot of costs. Um, And so part of why I wrote this book and the first couple chapters kind of focus on this cultural blind spot, we tend to really value this grittiness, but it comes with costs and consequences that we don't always put together with the behaviors. So we choose to compartmentalize our stressful situations to keep going. We choose to, you know, keep pushing our bodies hard without recovery. We keep choosing to um, kind of grit on the pain and not really pay attention to it and maybe just self-medicate it. And all of those things over time are leading to imbalances in our body, in our minds, in our relationships, in our organizations. And I wanted to help people kind of see that because there is a different way that we can move through the world. I mean, I used to do suck it up and drive on really well. It was my main way of being. Um, and in my case, it led to, you know, chronic respiratory illnesses, insomnia, PTSD, depression, and eventually I even had Lyme disease and didn't know it. I lost my eyesight for a while. Guess what? When you can't see, it's like, whoa, okay, now I'm going to pay attention. <laughs> it's interesting that, right? Because um, it's fascinating there's so much I want to get into because, you know, I'm a business owner. A lot of my audience are entrepreneurs and, you know, um, there's, you know, on this show, in my book, you know, there's a lot of narrative and sentiment around the things that you said in the sense of, you know, resilience, grit, perseverance, just push through one more day, one more hour, just keep going, keep going, keep going. Um, and that's fine. It has its place, um, but it's not sustainable. And uh, what oftentimes happens in, in a business is that the business starts to run you. You don't actually run the business. Yes. Uh, and, and that's actually where the trouble happens. There's also a, a big narrative. It's called hustle porn in the U.S. Um, it's a terrible name or label for uh, essentially a mindset where you must work yourself to the bone, you know, to be mm-hmm. successful um, and, uh, and it's, and, and in many cases you can say again, it has its place context dependent, but again, it's bad advice for especially, you know, first time founders of companies who have never done it. They don't really know that it's not that necessary to break yourself to a point where you lose your eyesight or you have a health problem or you develop uh, uh, whatever it is, like um, you burn out, burnout's huge, you know, uh, and, mm-hmm. and we, and suddenly to your point, and in your experience, you have that, that whoopsie and it's like, okay, now I'm here, but to get yourself back from that, that space, which is, let's just say you were a minus 10 to get back to a zero is hard, mm-hmm. hard work. And I'd love yeah. to get your view on that. I mean, how did you, how did you bounce back? Because losing your eyesight is something that certainly would send the warning signals. (laughs) Yes, it was past warning signals. It was like bright red DEFCON 1 light at that point. Um, But 
I think in my case, and in the case of many of the people that I've worked with, I really wanted some kind of quick, easy, silver bullet solution. Like I wanted to get back to pushing, right? I wanted this distraction to go away so I could just keep going. And what I've learned about the mind and body in the decades since that happened is that we're not wired that way. Just like it took us many repeated experiences, many moments of consciously or unconsciously choosing to just keep going for another hour, for another day. For Every time we made that choice, that was having effects on our gene expression, on the wiring in our brain, on the wiring in our body. And it was leading us to develop certain muscles and it was leading us to kind of atrophy others, you know, both metaphoric muscles and actual physical muscles. It's the same way in reverse. Our minds and bodies are the accumulation of repeated experiences. And for many of us, repeated experiences are happening kind of completely on autopilot. And yet they're having these cumulative effects. So to begin to heal and recover, it wasn't like any one situation was that difficult, but it meant choosing over and over and over again to train my attention to go in a different direction, to help my survival brain start to feel safe enough that it could begin to turn on the recovery that is innate in us, but that most of us are blocking all the time, to give myself the space to nourish my body differently, to exercise in a different way that wasn't actually burning my system out, to develop some reflective practices so I could start to get really intentional about what kind of life did I want to create and what do you need to do? How do you line up your time and your effort and your energy to create that kind of life? None of those things are like um, all that kind of mind blowing, but they do take a certain intentionality over time. So in my case, because I had been so dysregulated for so long, um, you know, I would say the most intense parts of the recovery were probably about two and a half years. And then there was still like, as I was unpeeling the onion, you know, given the layers of trauma I had in my system and given the way that the survival brain, which is the part of the brain that controls stress arousal and recovery from stress, um, the way that the survival brain encodes memory during traumatic experiences is kind of convoluted and a little, um, kind of a little corrupted. And so it can take a while to unpeel that onion. Um, and so that took some years too. And I did some clinical training and included some of those techniques in MFIT. Um, so none of it is like rocket science, but it just takes a certain commitment that we are going to live in a different way. And sometimes it's just little habit shifts, but doing a little habit shift in a repeated way can have really big effects. Yeah. That's kind of a long answer. I hope no, no, no. It's great. It's great. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. Um, and uh, I just did this little search here. Um, uh, just trying to get some more context. I'm kind of going to talk you through it. Uh, bring it up on the screen for you guys. But it's an article, funnily enough, right, that was, um, you probably came across it in your research, but it's on the Harvard Business Review. Uh, it's entitled The Dark Side of uh, Resilience. And it goes on, and this is where I'm using this preamble to kind of ask you a poignant question here, but it says resilience is defined as the psychological capacity to adapt to stressful circumstances and to bounce back from adverse events. Um, it, I, I've come across this term before and it's called bounce back ability. 
you know, it's the ability to bounce back from a failure in business. It's the ability to take a loss and keep going anyway. Uh, it's the ability to choose, to your point, to introduce new habits so that you can continue to do the thing that you want to, you want to achieve. So in the context of high-performance people and mindsets, it's, 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 it's right at the top. It's super acute yes. in terms of the discipline yes. and the mindset that um, you, know, you need to, to have in order to be successful. Most of us aren't there. We're kind of like sitting in the middle of the pyramid. Um, and so we fail probably as much as them, but the way that we interpret that internally uh, is where the difference often uh, comes into play, right? So this is where the bounce back ability factor, high performance people have the ability to bounce back faster, recover faster versus somebody who's not so much high performance. You could say that they're smart, but they're lazy, sometimes great leaders, <laughs> you know, people <laughs> are smart and lazy. Uh, but, um, but my question is bounce back ability. How do you foster that? You know, because I believe that if you can, if you can grow, if you can flex that bounce back ability muscle, you would stand yourself in much better stead for success. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. This is another great question. Can I take a little diversion to give a little science so I can give my answer? I would love to. Yeah, <laughs> go for it. Go for it. Okay. So um, I like to use the dual processing way of thinking about the brain works. Um, Daniel Kahneman is probably the one who's most famous for making this point in his book, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. Um, and I talk about the thinking slow part, the deliberate, cognitive kind of reasoning, deliberate decision making, um, all of our willpower, all of our memory that we have explicitly, that we can explicitly call it, all that is in the thinking slow part. And I call that the thinking brain. Um, the, the survival brain does the process, and it's always happening unconsciously, of threat appraisal. And if it you know, thinks, find something in, in, inside us or around us to be challenging or threatening, it will turn on stress. It has an implicit memory system to support that process, which is kind of this bank of all the prior moments where it was appraising, are we under threat or stress? And then it controls all the survival functions and rest and recovery. And these two parts of our brain, the wiring is, in, is linked, but I'm talking about them functionally. These two different parts of the brain um, react differently to stress arousal. Our thinking brain functions, they work best at moderate stress levels. 
So um, it's one of the reasons why many of us have caffeine addictions, because caffeine kind of gets us into the zone of modern arousal. It sharpens our attention. We can make decisions. We can prioritize things and knock things off the list. But then when we get to higher stress levels or we get to prolonged stress arousal without enough recovery, thinking brain functions get declined. They start to degrade. They get compromised. And at the most high levels of arousal, when we move into the zone of trauma, many thinking brain functions go offline. It's the reason why so many of us have kind of inconsistent or fragmented or even missing memories of very traumatic events because the thinking brain doesn't, isn't fully online to form and hold explicit memory that we can call up consciously. Okay. So thinking brain functions declining over prolonged or high stress levels. And this includes willpower, which I'm going to come back to in a minute. Survival brain functions, on the other hand, they are because they're there to help us physically survive. That's why I call it the survival brain. Of course, they are going to be doing really well at high stress levels. Like that's when you want them to be functioning well. So the more stress arousal we're experiencing, even up into the very high zone of trauma, the more stress arousal we're experiencing, the more the survival brain is learning and remembering. And it's assembling all of this memory in that implicit memory system. So we don't access it consciously, but it then turns on certain default programming, including certain cognitive loops, certain physical sensations, certain emotions. And then if we, it it all sort of holds it in this unconscious memory capsule, we can tap into it in lots of different ways. And then all of a sudden it's fully blown again. It's the reason why someone can have been, you know, experienced combat or experienced a mass shooting and then they hear a car backfire and all of a sudden they're like freaking out because they've popped into one of those memory capsules from that traumatic event. Okay. So we have these different effects of stress, chronic stress and high levels on these two brain functions. So how does this come back to bounce back ability? People who have wide windows of tolerance to stress arousal, who are really resilient at a neurobiological level, These people can experience stress and go to very, very high stress levels and still keep thinking brain functions online. They also can experience the crisis or the big challenging event and then fully recover back to their baseline. And in our research with Marines, we had them wearing bio bio harnesses so we could track moment to moment their heart rate, their breathing rate um, as they were going through this mock Afghani village going through assaults and um, IED attacks. And so we knew moment by moment as a stressor would happen, gunfire would happen, what was happening. And it was interesting, the Marines that had been trained in MFIT, when something happened, you know, the IED attack or the assault ambush, they went up to really high arousal levels. Their heart rate and, and breathing rate spiked really high. And then when the thing had passed, In some cases, within 90 seconds, they were back down to their baseline heart rate and breathing rate. It just, they had the spike and they came back down. Very wide capacity. The Marines who hadn't been trained in empathy, who hadn't been working to help really regulate their survival brain and their nervous system, they went up to not as high a peak, but then they stayed at this elevated plateau up to half an hour after the stressor was over. They finished their mock drill. They were sitting down quietly and they were still had, you know, panting breathing and their heart rates were still elevated. 
Now that has effects to their physical capacity, and that is sort of a physical bounce back ability. But it also is going to have effects then on mental bounce back ability. Because remember, if you're still beyond moderate stress arousal, your thinking brain functions are going to be more declined. And that's when you're going to have a hard time accessing the most important information. Your information search and assessment is going to be biased. It's going to be much more us versus them oriented. You're going to be much more likely in that case to forget or misplace pieces of information or be really distracted. You're much more likely to have waves of anxious thoughts or or waves of kind of rumination about some emotional thing that is going to block being able to really make a good decision. And that then will color the way you are going to interpret the recent failure. So you're going to have much less capacity for kind of a mental bounce back ability as well. This was really a long answer, but I hope I captured no, you got it. Asking. Yeah, you did. Thank you. Uh, what's the relationship to mental and physical bounce back ability? Because in my experience, people would over index towards mental bounce back ability, the ability to go, you know, it's cool. I can keep doing this, but the physical stuff is something that's, you know, to your point, it's, it's sometimes you compartmentalize that thing or, or that event and you just shove it down there so that you can continually free up that kind of mental bandwidth, you know what I'm saying, to, to bounce back. But you haven't really addressed the physical stuff. And that's where sometimes it can manifest in all sorts of things. Um, how do you, how, what is your advice to a, an entrepreneur or to somebody who is you know, suffering at the moment um, and is super stressed to your point around the, you know, the guys who can handle it, but then there's those people who can't uh, and who haven't had your type of training. And I'll get into that after this. Um, but uh, what's your advice to that person who is not quite sure how to, you know, combine that mental and physical bounce back ability together? That's a great question. Um, in the book, I have eight chapters that look at building agency, both kind of agency that we think of consciously in terms of being able to make a conscious choice, but also agency for our survival brain so that our survival brain is not perceiving us in situations to be helpless or powerless or lacking control. Because when the survival brain is is surveying a situation um, and it finds it threatening or challenging, it's going to turn stress on. But if it also feels that we are powerless, helpless, and lacking control in that situation, it's going to turn on even more stress and move into the zone of trauma, right? So part of this is trying to retrain the survival brain, which again is unconscious. We can't access it by thinking about it. We can only see what's going on in it by looking to the effects in our body, in our physical sensations, in our emotions which is the reason why paying attention to the physical bounce back ability is so important because that's often where the survival brain is showing us. Is it stressed? Is it traumatized? Is it feeling safe right now so I can do recovery? And being able to train ourselves to be able to support the survival brain to feel safe so that it can access its own kind of agency and then have the physical and mental bounce back ability work together. So I've Eight, eight chapters in the book that kind of talk about what we can do with that. One of those chapters is very focused on what I call window widening habits to widen our window of tolerance to stress. And again, none of these things are things that you haven't heard about before. None of them are super sexy. 
None of them are a silver bullet. But if we do them in a repeated way, even picking just one of these to really be intentional, I am going to make some difference with this one habit. It can have big, big effects for the survival rate. The single most important number one habit that we can really take care of for helping with physical and mental bounce back ability, sleep. Mm. At least eight hours a night. At least, at least eight hours a night. Um, there's a lot of research that I really dove into deeply when I'm not had insomnia for years. Part of it was PTSD. Part of it was I was just I had too much going on that I wasn't choosing to sleep. Even if I wanted to sleep, I, I was like, I'm not going to choose to do that right now. I still want to do things. Decades where I was sleeping like two to four hours a night. And when I read the research now, I'm like, oh my God, what was I doing to myself? But <laughs> what's interesting in that research is that research tends to define short sleep as getting six or fewer hours a night. And when I talk to any of these high stress audiences that I teach, even when I talk to my Georgetown students and I tell them, okay, this research defines short sleep as six hours a night or less. Everyone's like, oh, that's what I sleep. I thought that was enough, but it isn't. It's fascinating in this research to see the cognitive effects. And what's fascinating is people's subjective sense of their cognitive capacity is like, oh, I'm not having any problems at all. But then on the actual cognitive tests, they have real declines. They go into micro sleep, they have attentional deficits, they have working memory deficits, they have willpower problems with then affects kind of cravings and giving into bad habits. Um, they see all kinds of hormonal changes, um, more cortisol, um, changes in ghrelin and leptin, which are two of the appetite um, hormones that, and when they get imbalanced with cortisol, it basically means people that are craving eating, eating more often, eating more, and especially eating a lot of sugar, a lot of carbs, a lot of fat. That's what they crave. Like, um, and so people's diet then moves in this kind of junk foodie, high sugar way, which is also then all of that is kind of artificially propping the system up. Caffeine is a stimulant, sugar is a stimulant. So the system's kind of being artificially propped up so they don't feel as tired, but it's, it's like running on a sugar high. It's not, so all of that can kind of accumulate. When we're getting enough sleep though, much of those hormone things reset. Our immune system resets so that we're much less likely to get colds. Our cognitive capacity resets. And while we're sleeping, our survival brain does a ton of recovery, a lot of pruning of synapses in the brain, clearing the amyloid plaque that's associated with dementia, healing tissues and doing repair. So, you know, I just said way too much, but sleep, number one thing that your entrepreneurs could do, get more sleep. They do nothing else. I'm always fascinated about that because I'm wondering to myself, well, why can't the body, I mean, if the unconscious mind can run your heart and everything else in your body without you consciously thinking about it when you're awake. Why do you need to sleep? It's a thing because I know it's not a, it's just a weird curiosity that I have because I know in theory that you write, I understand that the body recovers better when you're not thinking, you know, the, 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 the brain kind of files all the recordings from the day and the emotions and it creates new neural pathways and stuff. And I, I get that there in theory, you know, um, and I 
fully agree with you um, around the sleep thing because, and also the propping up, I didn't actually know that that's what was happening. So sometimes, I mean, I got two young kids and like, God forbid we have one of those nights, you know? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And so, uh, and like, if I have, you know, let's just say four hours because my brain, I can't switch it off or what have you. Um, And then I have that, you know, short sleep cycle. Um, I notice I just eat like, a ton more calories than I would normally or I'd have a lot more coffee and I just like all the discipline goes out. I kind of lose like a, like I got a gym right here outside, you know, and like, I'm look at the barbell. I'm like, I'm doing that today. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, and I get that. I mean, I even, have you ever tried those Garmin smartwatches? No, I haven't. So uh, for those of you who don't know uh, about that, it's, um, it's essentially a smartwatch. And what, that, it, that, what it does, it tracks your sleep, right? The actual duration of the sleep, but then it tracks, I don't know, even know how, this, how it does it biochemically, but it can tell you exactly how much deep light, uh, deep mm. light sleep you had. Or, and actually when you were kind of like awake. <laughs> so like you think, no, no, I slept well, but actually you were awake for four hours. You know, um, and it's quite interesting to then uh, see over time. Let's just say you took a thousand milligrams of magnesium, what that does to the depth of sleep. So it's a way for you to to use actual data to you know yes. do the things that you're saying, which is to you know get a better rest so you can actually become you know a person who's operating at a higher level more consistently, right? Yes. I am a big fan of gathering data and keeping a log. When I was making some of these changes for myself in my diet, in my exercise, in my sleep, um, in even social connections, which is another habit that I, I kept a physical log on paper. I was very old school, pen and paper. But I knew from you know my training in social sciences what we are tracking and measuring, that's what we're going to pay attention to. So there is something really helpful about keeping a log. And if you're using a Fitbit or you're using the tracker you're talking about, you have data there. And then you can over time see the changes and see what's working and what isn't. But it's an important part, if you do keep a log, of also keeping notes of how you were feeling. What was my energy level that day? Was I anxious or not anxious? Was I feeling in my body or not in my body? And that kind of stuff can help with tweaking it. Um, but it helps to kind of firm up the discipline to stick with the habit change. Yeah, exactly. Can we uh, maybe change gears and talk about your actual uh, techniques uh, that you've developed and that you've used with the US military and stuff? So the, acronym, the acronym is, uh, is MF. MMFT as a mindfulness-based mind fitness training. So this is an evidence-based approach to uh, resilience essentially. Um, But uh, maybe you could explain it all to us. What, how does it work exactly? Why does, what are some of the results in the military? How can we apply this? Great. So um, MMFT is the acronym. You've got to have an acronym when you work with the military and we pronounce it MFIT. Um, because, you know, there's a, a parallel between physical fitness and mind fitness and M fit was to kind of capture, we're working on mind fitness, which is why, um, we, we went with that name. Um, the program kind of blends from three different lineages and traditions that I, I have training in. So the first lineage is the warrior traditions. Now for millennia, there have been 
you know, in the East and in the West, there have been these traditions that train, usually in the past, young men to be able to defend their communities. And the training was very built around mind and body practices on a path of self-discipline moving towards mastery. And the idea was that warriors who were trained in this, who could really embody the ethics of the warrior ethos, they would have this capacity in their mind and body to be able to respond to whatever happened and to trust that they would have the skills to respond flexibly and adaptively without necessarily having a script. And that was the main idea behind, it was a very capacity building kind of focus. And I build on that because in all of the warrior traditions that I did research on in all these different cultures, there were two qualities that were really important in all of them, wisdom and courage. And when we look and train our minds and bodies to be able to make the most discerning decisions and to be able to care for both our own minds and bodies and the people around us, we need wisdom and courage. It, it takes courage to face these vulnerabilities in ourselves, And it takes courage to stay present in a moment when things are going to hell and you don't really want to be there. And instead of distracting, you're you know, staying fully present to make the best choices. Um, so that's one lineage. The second lineage is mindfulness um, training, uh, training the awareness. It is something that we have, in, again, an innate capacity. Um, but for most of us, we're not necessarily in a mindful default state. Many of us are on autopilot. Um, so mindfulness is no big deal. It's just training ourselves to notice what's happening as it's happening. And it involves a fair amount of training the attention. And as I did all the research for the book, it became super clear. I knew this from my own mind and body, um, from my own healing and from the clinical training I did, but it was really interesting to also see it in the research where we're directing our attention consciously or unconsciously has these tremendous ripple effects through the survival brain and then into the nervous system and then into the body. If we're directing our attention at something that is going to be challenging, the survival brain is going to find that challenging and turn on stress. If we're directing our attention at something that the survival brain finds safe or stable or grounded, then again, that is going to have ripple effects towards safety and recovery. So that's kind of the second strand. And the third strand is um, from some body-based trauma therapies that I did some clinical training in first as a client and then as a, as a clinician training. Um, and I mostly draw from one called somatic experiencing. And it's very focused on helping to heal trauma by rewiring our autonomic nervous system and helping the survival brain to recover from traumatic events. So those three lineages come together. Um, and the training is very focused on building new habits Based on this principle of where our attention is, it's going to have these ripple effects. So we can learn to direct our attention in conscious ways that help our system to have the best performance so that we can widen our window of tolerance to stress. When we did the research, um, we taught it live as an eight-week course um, in two-hour blocks of time um, over eight weeks. And outside of the class time together, um, the Marines and the soldiers would practice these exercises. They range in length from five minutes to about half an hour, and they would divide them up in small parts throughout the day. Many of them can be worked into daily activities um, so that over time they could do it as part of what they were doing through the world. 
And what was fascinating was the effects we found. Um, you know, the research, we did four different research studies uh, funded by the Department of Defense. Uh, I had neuroscience and stress physiology partners. Um, they gathered all of the, the raw data and they crunched it. There was a division between me and them. So there was kind of no conflict of interest there. But the research showed a lot of facets of a wider window, much better cognitive performance, um, improvements in sustained attention, improvements in working memory and working memory capacity better emotion and emotion regulation. So they reported more positive emotions and fewer negative emotions. They also saw changes in the wiring of the parts of the brain and brain activation patterns, the parts of the brain involved with impulse control and emotion regulation and stress regulation. Um, and they shifted, the, those, those brain activation patterns shifted to match prior research that had been done on very elite athletes and very elite performers like SEALs and, and Green Berets. Those people had sort of had it as their natural profile. We took people who weren't that profile and after eight weeks got them to match that profile, which is really great. And then a lot of changes in physiological resilience, better sleep quality, longer sleep duration, fewer sleep aids. Um, the bioharnesses I talked about before, so there's changes in the heart rate and breathing rate going through acute stress, and also changes in some of their blood biomarkers. Um, the main scientific biomarker for resilience is neuropeptide Y. We saw real improvements in neuropeptide Y during stress. And also we saw changes in IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor, which is one of the growth factors that we produce when we're getting restful sleep, and it's really involved in much better immune function. Um, so a wide range of different changes, um, all from practicing this attention training and, you know, they kept logs of their time and then they turned the logs in directly to my research partner. So I didn't see the logs, um, on average, they were practicing only about 12 minutes a day, 12 minutes a day. It doesn't need to be this massive time commitment. But again, they were doing it every day. It's that mm. repeated experience thing I said before. Mm -hmm. Just out of interest, did your research ever touch on exposing the body to extreme cold um, to activate the sympathetic nervous system, which from my understanding is the kind of body's response to stressful situations? Uh, just out of interest, because uh, the reason why I'm asking is because um, maybe you know of him or not, but there's this Dutch guy called Wim Hof. And, I've heard of him. Yeah. So, I mean, so he's all about, like, he's called the Iceman, right? And so um, I, I have cold showers all the time. So I'm trying to figure out, like, if you wanted to train your body, remember the mind versus body thing that we discussed on discussed earlier, if someone was listening to us and go, well, what can I do to train my body to respond more appropriately to stressful conditions? We'll go and stand in a cold shower in winter would be my kind of like, <laughs> <laughs> which is where we are now. Right. Um, but uh, just in your research, did you, did you touch on this? And, and is there, is it, is there a link in your research to, you know, training your body to adapt to that, that, you know, that, that fight or fright kind of response, like what have you discovered there? Well, um, again, we did not look at temperature changes as one of the stressors. Um, there is, you know, I know Wim's work looks at the extreme cold to create a, a, an instant fight or flight with an activation of, of stress arousal of the sympathetic nervous system. There's other research, especially in Finland, that looks at saunas and the effects of very high heat and what that does for, for regulating the system. 
I'm not super familiar with all of that research and we didn't do temperature changes. The way that we induced extreme stress beyond them doing their mock combat drills in the Afghani village, which was pretty stressful. I mean, they were running around and they were having IEDs blown up and they were you know, coming under ambush. So I would call that pretty stressful and we got a chance to measure that with heart rate and breathing rate. But in addition to that, when they were in the brain imaging scanner in the MRI machine, um, they did two different tasks that would um, stimulate stress arousal for us to see which parts of the brain activated and did they activate in the elite performer pattern or kind of the non-elite performer pattern. And one of them, I did it myself because I wanted to know what the Marines were going through. Um, you lie in the scanner, and so it's already kind of a little enclosed and you know, somewhat claustrophobic, and there's all the big sounds of the magnet. And then you're, you're breathing through a tube. And the tube has a way for them to then change the mix of oxygen in the air that you're getting. And so it take, you're starting with normal, you know, the mix of air as it normally is. And then as you're continuing to breathe there, they drop, artificially drop the oxygen content in the breath to, in the air that you're getting through this tube, down to 5% of what it normally is. So you're, you're sitting there just sort of sucking on this wind and you feel like you are starting to suffocate because you're not getting enough oxygen. That is a really great way to induce a big stress response. Um, <laughs> so we did that. We didn't do cold. <laughs> but you can use cold. You can use heat. You can use extreme exercise. Any of those things are going to begin to activate your sympathetic nervous system. And then if you pair that with a full recovery, to bring your parasympathetic nervous system back online, uh, especially your ventral parasympathetic nervous system back online, and you can get recovery that way. It's one of the reasons why one of the window widening habits is exercise, cardiovascular exercise. Hmm. And uh, in that particular example where you, you know, the oxygen reduction story was happening, what were you looking to understand practically? Was it, was it around where the brain was activating specifically? Yes, we were imaging the brain as someone was going through that experience. And it is one of the best ways to get directly at the parts of the brain that regulate stress and emotion. And it, those are parts of the survival brain. So they're not parts you're getting at consciously. The other tasks you know, are usually done with images or they're done with sounds or they're done with often with images or you're matching patterns or some, some kind of tasks you're in there and you're like playing a computer game and you think that there's two other people playing and you're throwing the ball. And then all of a sudden the two are throwing the ball without you. So they can see what parts of the brain activate with that social exclusion. All of those are kind of testing different thinking brain functions. But when you get at breathing, breathing is a core function in our brain stem. You know, the oldest reptilian part of our brain, it's entirely under survival brain control. And we wanted to look at the regulatory brain regions that regulate that part. So the insula cortex, the anterior cingulate cortex, and the best way to do that is go right into breathing. It's a core survival function. That's interesting, right? Because in, uh, well, all, are, all around now, I mean, if you go even on Netflix, there's that Headspace uh, series. I don't know whether you've seen that. Um, and uh, so, head, you know, okay, so Headspace is a mindfulness app. It's, I know what the app is, but no, I haven't oh, seen yeah, it. Yeah, so it's weird. Like, I couldn't believe it because I saw Headspace on Netflix. I was like, what the? Like, <laughs> really? 
what is net what is headspace doing on netflix i was like this is amazing this is like proper crossover you know from, from in terms of meditation it was like truly direct to the home which i was like wow that's really huge for not only headspace but for the entire mindfulness category um, and as you know, and as many of our uh, listeners and, and viewers will know, is that mindfulness is very much about breathing, which is kind of what you were saying, right? Um, and even Wim Hof, it's like you take, you know, 20, 30 to 40 deep breaths all the way in, we're not, you know, whatever. And then you, you, and then you hold your breath, you know, so breathing is a thing. And, and there's a lot of research um, that, okay, I don't read this stuff. <laughs> I don't have my time, but, but certainly there's a lot of research that I've been hearing about around the ability or the relationship rather between mindfulness or mind uh, and physio- physiology and how much yes. of it we actually don't know. Uh, equally, we don't know a lot about the brain, which is why and how we can rewire things and, you know, da, da, da. but um, I want to talk to you about breathing um, in your research um, or, you know, in any case at all, um, what have you learned about the relationship to, to breathing uh, and and high performance. Um, I'm really glad you moved into a breathing direction after talking about how much breathing is a focus in meditation and in many other techniques. I I know from my own first experience when I first learned how to meditate, when I first learned mindfulness meditation and awareness of breath, I had these really weird effects that none of my teachers could explain. And I thought it was meant something was wrong with me. And it wasn't until I went to train my first group of Marines in 2008. And I saw two thirds of them having the exact same response that I had. I mean, slightly different in the manifestation, but it was the same kind of stress thing. And I was like, wait a minute, this is something that's a pattern. And that's part of why I went and did clinical training and created MFIT in the form it is now. So let me talk a little bit about breathing. Breathing is controlled by the survival brain. And when we have the sympathetic nervous system come on, we go into stress arousal, our breathing rate increases, our heart rate increases, but our breathing rate increases, it often gets shallow. Um, When we move into the highest arousal levels, up into the zone of trauma, our dorsal parasympathetic nervous system comes online at the same time in its threat mode. And those two are on together and we move into what's called freeze. When we move into freeze, it is, you can think of freeze like the opossum, the possum who plays dead, possum goes into freeze. All all reptiles, all fish, all mammals go into freeze when they get to these very high arousal levels. And it's actually very merciful. It's the body beginning to prepare to shut down in case of fatal death, right? And so when we have gone into freeze as humans, it subjectively feels like Time is slowing down. We might have vision issues where our like tunnel vision, we might lose sound. We might feel very disconnected from our body, like we're watching from far away. Um, Our breathing gets very shallow um, and our face gets slack because all of the muscles that are controlled by the other part of the parasympathetic nervous system, they all go offline when dorsal's online. And this is when someone could potentially you know, lose their bladder and their bowels, and their system is starting to shut down. As it's doing that, it goes into oxygen conservation. So we, it's like we, we really 
stop, we become, we breathe very shallowly and very, very infrequently. So breathing is really, all this to say, breathing is really implicated in stress arousal up through the zone of trauma. Now, earlier I was talking about memory capsules that happen in the implicit memory when we've experienced trauma, the way that the survival brain is storing those prior events. And a memory capsule is what the survival brain kind of captured in that really traumatic or really stressful moment. And it's holding it all there unconsciously that we can trigger it later on. We talked about the backfire of the car, remember? Well, we can trigger memory capsules with breathing. And this is what happened with me. So when I was learning how to meditate, Awareness of breath, it's usually the first target object that people are given. Breath is usually assumed to be neutral. Pay attention to your breathing. But when someone is as dysregulated as I was, as stressed out and as imbalanced as I had become, and they take the full weight of their attention and turn it to their breath, it has the potential to trigger some of those prior memory capsules. And so I would find myself sometimes just even 10 minutes of awareness of breathing, I would pop into this massive panic attack. My whole system would like feel like I was struggling to breathe because I'd had a near-death experience where I hadn't been breathing. I had a trauma involving breath. And then for days after this would happen, I would feel claustrophobic and I would be anxious and I would be an insomniac again. I'd have chronic pain. I'd have fear of lights and people. And I had no idea what was going on. And I'd ask teachers and they would say, well, you just need to keep practicing. Just, you know, just accept it. And I'm like, but this is really hard. As I said, two thirds of my Marines started having effects like this when I taught awareness of breathing to them. They would report feeling like they needed to jump out of their skin, like they had to punch the wall, like they were just going to like lose their temper. They would go off on other people. They would, they were doing a lot of irritation. I did a lot of fear. But fear and anger are both part of stress arousal, right? Like this was part of those memory capsules. When I saw all of that happen, and then I learned the science of the survival brain, how the memory works in the survival brain, the nervous system, how it goes through stress arousal, how we impede recovery, I stopped teaching awareness of breathing until five weeks in. I used totally different target objects of attention early on. So that as we bring awareness into the body, the survival brain is gaining access to target objects of attention that are not going to trigger it, but that are going to help it feel safe because that's what's so important for survival brain agency. So the first target object of attention in MFIT, this is going to sound funny and weird, but it really, really works. Paying attention to the contact of your butt with the chair and your feet with the floor. Not thinking about those things, but feeling the pressure, the hardness, maybe the heat, maybe there's itching, maybe there's dampness, maybe there's uh, tingling, paying attention to sensations of contact, butt with the chair, feet with the floor, hands touching each other, touching your lap. Five minute exercise called contact points. Anyone can download it off my website for free. You can play that each day, use contact points. Luckily, our bodies are in contact with something all the time. You can be lying down in your bed, the back of your body with the bed, standing in line at the bank, your feet with the floor. You can always use contact points. And what's so amazing about contact points is it is cueing 
attention to show the survival brain in this moment, I am safe. In this moment, I am grounded. I am stable. And when the survival brain perceives that, you can feel the sense of settling. And it is the primary object of attention to help cue the survival brain to turn on recovery and the nervous system to do all the recovery that's needed. And that is how the sequence starts in MFIT. We don't do awareness of breathing until week five. Mm. I recently finished an online version of the course that's available on demand. Anyone anywhere in the world can watch it um, and, and do it with Sounds True. And when I was first working with them to film it, um, and was leading kind of some of the people involved through the exercise. They were like, this is so odd. Why hasn't anyone ever taught me about my contact points? Like, well, yeah, it's not the way meditation is traditionally taught, but this is incorporating an understanding of how the mind and body works so that the, the training of the attention is moving towards recovery and towards bounce back ability. I can uh, relate. I want to share a quick story. So have you ever been bungee jumping? Oh, no. I'd like to, but I haven't. No, not so. <laughs> There's a, the, the, the highest bungee jump in the world is called Blokrans. Okay, so it's like 220 meters. Uh, it's like, <laughs> that's like 700, 800 feet. Yes, that's uh, a <clears throat> lot. So, so it's, it's quite high. Uh, there's another one that's like the mini, mini one on the way to Hurwitz and that, sorry, onto Blokrans and it's called Hurwitz and that's about... 60 meters. So it's not, not nothing quite like Blokron. So I went to Horitz. I was a young, I was young, I was like 18. And, uh, and everyone's like, no, we're going to go jump off this bridge. So I'm like, okay, cool. And bungee jumping back then was like, you know, a cool new thing. <laughs> it was like the iPhone. <laughs> Everybody wanted to go jump. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I distinctly remember standing there and the guys putting the rope up around my feet and uh so he's like they you know put my arms out like this and he goes three two one bungee and i jumped and what you just i never knew what it was actually i just knew physio physiologically what what i felt and the moment i jumped something in my head went this was a stupid idea i was using creatives <laughs> um and my I, I, I've never felt this ever before in my life to that level of acuteness. But for me, it was, it was that top level trauma thing where I, I could not breathe. I could yeah. not breathe. It was just unbelievable. And like, yeah. I don't know why, like until you've explained it to me, but I, I, I could not breathe for probably the, well, in fact, the entire duration while the earth rushed up towards my face and I remember when the rope started to take up slack, I felt it constricting around my ankles. And because of the force of, the, of my body going down, it felt like my, and the constriction of the rope, it felt like my feet were going to come out of the bindings. So I still remember distinctly curling up my toes because I literally thought I was going to die. Um, and only when the rope like kind of stopped moving down and then it rebounded back up again. I went, <gasps> but it was like, it was crazy. And it was completely unconscious. It was like, I didn't think that, yes. just, like that just happened. Yes. And it was yes. scary as, you know, um, and yes. I was just like, I will never, ever, ever jump off a bridge with a rope around my ankles. No way. <laughs> it's just like, that is. Well, having heard that, maybe I will not want to do that anymore. I don't but, think I want to induce a freeze. But what's interesting though, 
funnily enough, if you go skydiving, it's a different thing. It's a weird thing because now I'll jump out of a plane and I won't have that feeling because I'm not, it feels like I have time and I'm, I'm higher. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like it's just a funny, it's a funny thing the way that the, the brain works um, in that sense. But I mean, that, that's for me is, is the closest thing I can think of in my own life that equates to, a, to that kind of physiological traumatic response. Yes. And just to tie those pieces together, when you're skydiving, you said you feel like you have time. There is a sense of survival brain agency there. You don't, your survival brain isn't feeling helpless or powerless. When you were jumping off that bridge and you were moving towards the ground, you couldn't do anything. You were helpless and powerless at that point. You were at the force of physics, like it was in charge and your survival brain knew that. And it was like, oh, yeah, it was bad. Did it feel like it was going to go on forever? Because it often feels when we are in freeze, like time has completely slowed down. There was no time. It was just, mm. I'm free falling and this sucks. <laughs> so I was oh. like, until the end, because you don't, it, you know what it is? It's that there's no finality about it. It's infinite in your, yeah. in your mind, in your body. It's yes. like, I'm going to yes. fall and I'm yes. going to hit until I hit the ground, <laughs> you know, yes. I'm gonna, and then it's done. So you, it's a bit, it's just to your point is that it was that survival thing. And it was just like, yeah, yes. dude, you're going to, you put me into a situation where you're going to kill yourself sort of thing. Um, but um, it, it was just such a surreal experience here. Sure. Thinking about that. I think your thing around contact points. Um, I studied neuro-linguistic programming uh, years ago mm. when I was young, 20, my early twenties. And an- are you familiar with the idea of, of anchoring? So if you not in NLP, I mean, I'm familiar with anchoring in general, but not there. It's probably the same thing, right? So I don't, I don't know. I'm not not an expert, but, uh, but anchoring is that same thing where it's body contact points. So you will think it's, it's the idea of stacking anchors. So let's just say if you, if you, if you're in a high performance state, let's just say you, you lift, you do, you know, 10, you deadlift 80 kilos, 10 times, you're in a high performance state and you touch your index finger knuckle at the top, right? And then you do push-ups, or you do something that's also uh, that elevated states, and you keep touching that knuckle over time. You stack your body's ph- physiological reactions to a mm. contact point, and mm. and it's used in in um, in therapy for people who have um, you know phobia. So uh, you know mm-hmm. this like it, so they're freaking out. They can't breathe. It's the equivalent of jumping off that bridge, but just different context. And the idea being is that if, you, if your therapist, your NLP practitioner has stacked anchors, when you're having that, that kind of like a physiological reaction, that phobia hits you, like you can hit, you touch your knuckle and it will help your unconscious yeah, right. mind reactivate yes. down yes. and actually help you to, to, to control yes. that, that reaction. Yes. Yeah, that it's a, it sounds to me similar and not the same, yes. but it's this idea of contact points, which is actually quite yes. interesting. I'm actually going to start to use that because like sometimes I've been on calls sometimes where it's like hectic, like it's a legal thing. Um, and, uh, you know, you're, I'm sitting here and my heart's doing like 180, you know, because uh, I want to like 
kill this person. <laughs> yes. Uh, and it's that same thing. I'm like, I'm at a 10. I'm having a reaction to that. And um, I've been in, and it's quite recent, not too, not too long ago, towards the end of last year. And I was sitting in this chair right now with this microphone, same thing, just different context. And I'm at 180 in my heart rate and I'm having that holy shit moment. And I didn't, I didn't have anything to, to use. I didn't have a practical, simple thing. Just think of, just focus on your butt cheeks. <laughs> you know. Exactly. It's funny. It's right? amazing. It's great. The ripple effects of attention. And it's really, the more we do it when we're not in a 180, you know, uh, heart rate, the more our survival brain really locks into, this is a place of stability for me. This is grounded. And so then we can be in a really intense situation. We can be in the middle of an argument with somebody and we can find our contact points and interrupt our reactivity and just sort of meet whatever they're giving us with non-reactivity. And then we can sort of channel our groundedness and their survival brain will pick up on it. It's a great way to de-escalate arguments. Um, I use it, the, the traffic in the DC area is starting to pick up again now um, as, as everybody's getting vaccinated and things are opening again. And so I was recently um, on the Beltway uh, after a, a massive like 18 wheeler had turned over. And so we were, people were sitting backed up miles and miles and miles. There was nowhere to go. There were no exits. And I could, I was sitting in my car and I could feel everyone around me seething and just, you could just sort of pick that up because we are wired to connect like that. And I was like, okay, I'm not going anywhere. And I just had my hands on the steering wheel and I felt my hands on the steering wheel. I felt my butt on the chair, you know, in the car. And it provided kind of a sense of groundedness in the midst of all of this irate impatience around me. So I didn't pick it up. So it's really great. Um, we can use it all the time. Yeah, fully agree. Fully agree. Um, Elizabeth, um, let's wrap this up. Why do you do what you do? Like, what is it about this that lights you up so much? Hmm. That's a wonderful question. I, I found such freedom in understanding my neurobiology so that I could both understand why I'd had some of the reactions I'd had, why my mind and body were doing what they're doing, but also it helped me not take all of my thoughts and all of my responses to situations quite so personally to understand the science. And I found that so liberating and I wanted to share that freedom with other people. I've watched people tie themselves up in knots with their anxiety or tie themselves up in knots with really identifying with a particular uncomfortable physical condition. And it begins to become kind of their a big part of their identity. And it doesn't need to be like, these are, these are neurobiological conditionings that are playing out. Many of them got wired in childhood before, you know, they were not under our control. And I like to help people understand that so they don't take it personally. And then to help them find leverage points where they can make just slight tweaks and things can begin to flow in a really different way. That really that really is passion for me. Amazing. Liz, Dr. Liz, it's been a, a real privilege having you on the show. I've thoroughly enjoyed having you here. Um, and uh, yeah, any final comments, anything you want to add? Just that I hope people will um, 
check out the book and maybe check out the online course and please download the uh, contact points exercise. You can, with that and sleep, you're on your way to um, some tremendous changes. Matt, thank you so much for happening me today. This was just a really great conversation. Yeah, you're very welcome. And just for the record, uh, you can get the book again. It's called Widen the Window on uh, on Amazon. And where do you get your your contact point? Is it from your website? Yes, go to my either the contact page of my uh, my website or the homepage. Either place you can get the link. Um, it's elizabeth-stanley.com, and there's a link on that page that clicks through to Sounds True to register for the online input course. Cool, and uh, it's up on the screen, guys. So that's Elizabeth dash stanley.com and uh yeah sign up for that mft stuff change your life so liz thank you for your time and for all of you checking in we'll see you again soon cheers thanks for listening to the map round show guys don't forget you can catch me on all social media platforms for the latest updates news and a show history. So if you've been catching this on the podcast, please head on over to our YouTube channel and pound that subscribe button. It would be great to catch the video version there. And if you want a free copy of my number one Amazon best-selling book, You're In A Game, for free right now today, you can grab that on mattbrownshow.com forward slash ebook. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my Clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.